Continuing my intermittent Friends of the Show series, this week's guest is a poet and podcaster from the US, Elijah Blumov. Elijah makes a show called Versecraft, which I've been listening to since it started, I think, in September last year, and which I would recommend to anyone who feels like they want to get to know a little bit more about all the tools in the poet's toolbox that don't get used a great deal these days. So if you want to know the difference between an Italian and an English sonnet, for example, or how iambic pentameter actually works, what a trochaic substitution is, and all the different ways you can use rhyme in a poem, this is the show for you. You might even want to start with Elijah's most recent episode, which, as he had been threatening to do for a long time, is a close reading of a poem by none other than A.D. Hope. It's really great. It's helped me to appreciate uh, Hope and to finally come to grips with at least one of his poems. I recommend it. Versecraft is also just a great way to spend some time closely considering one poem, which is something I used to do more here. It's kind of fallen off a bit over the last couple of years, but I want to try to get back to it. And so that's what we decided to do, at least for the first half of this episode. In terms of our taste, Elijah and I have some overlap, but it took us a little while, a bit of back and forth, to find a poem that we were both excited to dive into and talk about. And what we decided to do in the end was a poem by Gwen Harwood. Harwood's someone who I had always intended to read, like so many poets in the Australian canon. She's been on my list of people I need to get to for such a long time. And I'm so glad that I have finally read (laughs) and selected because she's a really powerful force. And I'm glad I finally appreciate something of the shape of her work now. So the first half of the episode, we take a really close look at this poem called Prize Giving, which is sort of this semi-autobiographical poem about a young student who seduces a stuffy and fairly self-important professor. And we have quite a bit of fun talking about the, the various angles on that. And then in the second half, I put on my fiercest guise, my most Lee Sales persona that I can access, and grilled Elijah over a couple of episodes he put out recently called The Case for Meter and Rhyme in which he makes the case that, really, poets writing today should be writing in meter and rhyme by default. I don't agree with this, but that's okay. It was still really fun to very gently argue about it. So it's an episode in two halves. I really hope you enjoy it. I hope you do go and check out Versecraft. I'll be back at the end to debrief with you. For now, here is Elijah. Welcome to the program. Let's get down to business. We're serious podcasters now. We're serious podcasters now, and we know everything and can answer all questions. Um, Well, we're actually enemies because you're going to grill me. Yeah, yeah. You're in just so much more trouble than you realize. You got your your all black inquisitorial Mm. outfit on. 
Well, I have to wear all black because I live in Melbourne. It's part of the uniform. <laughs> it likes to think it is. Uh, so we both finished our copies of Harwood Selected. I have the 1995 or 6 Angus and Robinson with the beautiful lavender farm on the front. You have some different version, which looked really cool in the picture you sent me. Yeah, I, I wish I, if I had known you were going to pull it out, I would have brought it with me, but um, oh, it has, oh, well. <laughs> it has, it has some strange modern art on the cover. I'm not sure what it's from, but yeah, it looked really it's cool. It's, oh, it's, it's from Carcanet, I think it's the Carcanet ah. selected Gwen Harwood. Well, there you go. What are your overall impressions having read the whole selected now? It's interesting to see her obsessions themes that carry through both uh and and also her technical works she writes a lot in tetrameter which is a little bit unusual for a modern poet um she likes to one thing that i noticed she likes to do that is kind of interesting is that she writes a lot of sequences and then in the different parts of the sequences she'll totally switch up the technique that she's using so she'll move from one rhyme scheme to another, or she'll room from move from not rhyming at all to rhyming, or vice versa, or she'll move from tetrameter to pentameter. And uh, it's interesting. It's almost like she she wants to write all of these different poems, but she has this sort of light motif that's moving through them, mm -hmm. um, which, I, which I thought was cool. It's interesting how interested she is in in Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein pops up all the time. That's definitely and, uh, one of the obsessions, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Wittgenstein and music, I think, are two that really run through. And, you know, there, there's other things like the ghost of colonialism and feminism and the things which I think she's sort of, you know, maybe the first things that you learn about her, I would imagine, if you're getting introduced to her. It seems like Wittgenstein is almost her muse in a way that no other poet seems to be. Although one of the other things that I think is notable about her is how she, how many epistolary poems she writes or they're not necessarily epistolary but poems that she dedicates to other contemporary poets she does that more than any other poet that i've seen in her in her selected yeah. she's always writing and communicating you know either in honor of or to or addressing other poets and she she has a lot of she has a very elegiac spirit she writes a lot of elegies yeah she's very nostalgic and it's sad when you get to the end of the selected because all the people she was writing poems to it becomes to the memory of James Macaulay, to the memory of this other, you know, Dady Hope um, poets that right. she, you know that she was in correspondence with, and then she outlives a lot of them, and it's just very, very sad. She also has these two characters, one of which we're going to talk about, Professor Eisenbart, and she has Kröter. This uh, Kröter's like a music teacher, and Eisenbart is a nuclear scientist for some description yeah he's like a nuclear physicist academic yeah and they're both sort of ridiculous older men who are fairly self-important and a lot of the time she's making fun of them but there's also sympathy there and i think that's there in this poem what interested you about this particular one prize giving because when i first came across these the Eisenbart poems. I was like, why do I care about this guy? Who's this person? How many poems are, do I have to read about this guy? 
Well, you but probably you... have to read more than I did because I, I only read a couple of them. Yeah, there's quite a few in my selected. Um, yeah, what attracted you to this one? I, I found it very charming. I, because there are a lot of works of art that deal with the Aegon between the Apollonian and the Dionysian or order and chaos. And this is just a very kind of sweet take on that. And we can we can get into it a little later when we're actually looking at the text, but I see I see the Bacchae kind of coming through a little bit in this poem, the Bacchae by Euripides. Uh, and you know, that is a terrifying, harrowing play, tragedy. Um, and then this is so much more of a delightful, tongue in cheek, flirty, you know, vignette. Mm. And uh, the way that she's able to bring those same, you know, very, you know, cosmic, profound forces into such a bright, sparkling little poem is, is very cool, I think. Yeah, it's got quite a light touch for some pretty big themes. Do you want to give us a bit of a quick overview of the formal techniques that she's using? Yeah, so she is writing in iambic pentameter. She's got sestets, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sestets. So that's a standard total... of six lines. Yes, and that's for a total of 42 lines. Mm -hmm. And they rhyme A, B, C, B, C, A. And they rhyme that way all the way through, except for in the sixth sestet, the word strange is not rhymed. And then the word swap is not rhymed, which is the only instance of not rhyming in this poem, which is very interesting. Huh. I didn't notice that. <laughs> I wasn't looking closely enough. Um, yeah, well, is, there, so, is that a rhyme scheme that she's come up with herself, or is that something that's like pretty standard? Uh, no, that, that I know of. I I haven't. This isn't a famous stanza. This isn't like Otava Rima or anything. I think she probably just came up with it and rolled with it. Like sometimes when I'm writing a poem, I will, you know, if I have a first line and then I have a second line, you know, if I'm having trouble using an initial rhyme scheme, I might say, okay, well, I'll go for this other rhyme scheme because the word that that rhymes here seems, you know more effortless or seems like it fits better here and then you end up coming with a nonce rhyme scheme and then the challenge becomes okay well you've made your bed now lay in it now you have to figure out how the rest of the poem is going to go with this rhyme scheme so mm. so the first couple of stanzas it's pretty much it's this great setup this great setup of this character professor eisenbart who is um pretty much immediately just like not a very uh, sympathetic person. Prize giving. Professor Eisenbart asked to attend a girls' school speech night as an honoured guest and give the prizes out, rudely declined, but from indifference agreed when pressed with dry scholastic jokes to change his mind, to grace their humble platform, and to lend distinction of a kind not specified to the occasion. Academic dress became him, as he knew. When he appeared, the girls whirred with an insect nervousness. The head, in humbler black, flapped round and steered her guest, superb in silk and fur, with pride. He's invited to a girls' speech night 
And he's like, no, I'm too good for that. But then immediately in the third line is like, actually, you know what? I will come <laughs> because, because I feel he's, he's told he's going to lend distinction of a kind not specified to the occasion, which I, I love that little joke in the first line of the second stanza. Um, oh, it's interesting because it says that he was convinced by these dry scholastic jokes. And that's so mysterious, like yeah, uh, using is... jokes as a, as a way to persuade someone to do something. It's, it's kind yeah. of odd. And there's yeah. no clue about what those kinds of jokes might be. Yeah, we're not sure. But what we do know already is that he's vain. He's Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the the most fruitful way to analyze this poem is to analyze the diction. Because I think the diction does so much of the work here, um, you know, in various ways. Like in the in the third line already, you have rudely. So already the speaker is making a, a pretty harsh judgment on Eisenbart. Mm. Um, in the next line, you have the word indifference, showing that he's aloof and doesn't really care. And he might be a little bit of beat. He's not passionate, which and, and the fact that he's not passionate will run through the whole poem mm. um, until the end uh, when, when he has his little revelation. Um, he has the dry scholastic jokes, which implies that he's stuffy in addition to being aloof and arrogant and unsympathetic. And uh, and then then because you've already had all that negative information thrown at you, to grace their humble platform is obviously ironic. So she's already, even in that first test, had established a very clear tone and mm. a very clear, clear attitude about the character she's writing about. So it seems to be you know, very satirical and that those are the expectations that you have. But then it develops into something else, which is what, what I think makes it really cool. Yeah. Yeah, but at the start, as a reader coming to this cold, I was like, oh, do I have to spend a whole poem with this guy? Oh, God, okay. So the second stanza, she starts to introduce the girls at the school and the head. So the girl's word with an insect nervousness is really a wonderful way to describe a school of girls, and then the head in humbler black. She's got this very, like, uh, serious kind of sober vibe, and then he is there in the last line, in silk and fur. So she's just reinf reinforcing that vanity that she's set up in the first stanza. Yeah. And I, I love the phrase she uses, academic dress became him, which obviously shows that he's he's not only caring about his appearance, he's not only you know, being vain and how he dresses and how he presents himself. But he also, I mean, there is already a note there of of trying to acquire some sort of sexual power. You know, mm. if, if something is, if you look becoming, that means you look attractive. Yeah. It's not just that you look distinguished. It's that you are giving off, a, you know, a, you're you're giving off a vibe of charisma. You're, you're, you're becoming, you're fetching. Uh, and not only that, but academic dress became him, I think is... It, it kind of suggests that he's becoming this figure that he's that he's trying to be. He's becoming this academic uh, paper doll that mm. they want him to be. It shows how easily, because of his vanity, he's absorbed into this role that he has to perform. And you know, he's he's playing the role on his own terms. He wants to be this dashing, becoming, uh, fancy academic professor. But he also it just shows how. You know, it's a, it's a sort of more ironic mockery in that he is so his vanity allows him and pushes him to just be the suit, you know, be be the 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 academic guy as mm. opposed to being his own person. He likes to fulfill that role of being this sort of nameless, mysterious 
uh, you know, not specified figure who yeah. is just the subject of this sort of abstract adoration. And that is even further underscored in the third stanza when it, she's talking about how he's sitting underneath these like wilting flowers and he scowls in violent distaste at that. But then he recomposes his figures to their best advantage. Steered her guest, superb in silk and fur, with pride to the best seat beneath half-hearted blooms, tortured to form the school's elaborate crest. Eisenbart scowled with violent distaste, then recomposed his features to their best advantage, deep in thought, with one hand placed like Rodin's thinker. He wants to look smart, look intelligent. It's just all about appearances, this guy, which is bizarre because yeah. he's a nuclear physicist. <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why is he so superficial? Yeah, and it also shows, I think, his own insecurity. He is someone who is presented as being pretty unfeeling, and yet he wants to be someone who evokes feelings in others. Yeah. And he's very caught up in that. And because he, he he's so determined to present this very specific uh, air, this very specific facade, you know, he, he over-intellectualizes it. And, you know, he's, whatever interest he's taking in passion, he's sort of making it his business to project that onto others, mm. as opposed to embodying any of his own passion. Um, at this stage, yeah, at this stage in the poem, for sure. Right, he's, and he's, yeah. he's, but like even later in the poem, by seeing how floored he is, how upset he is, uh, that shows that this is something he's not used to. He's not mm. used to having to deal with this kind of sensation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think insect is a great indication, another great uh, use of diction, where Harwood is indicating the power dynamics between the professor and, and the students. Um, and she, yeah. You, know, you, you you could say that he's viewing them as insects. I mean, obviously, it's not from his voice, but that's certainly probably how he would see them at this point. And the girls seem to take that in stride. You know, they're 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 sort of happy to be whirring around as insects. You know, before this grand figure who they're excited to see, maybe. Well, and the, uh, they hardly they hardly exist really, which is kind of reinforces his sort of view from above. I mean, even when she introduces them again in the fourth stanza, it's this top down view of like their young heads, the blonde, black, mouse brown. So he watched the room's mosaic of young heads, blonde, black, mouse brown. They bent for their headmistress's opening prayer. But underneath a light, no accident of seating, he felt sure, with Titian hair, one girl sat, grinning at him, her hand bent under her chin in mockery of his own. Right, and Mouse Brown is another, is another use of diction which, in, which links the girls with the vermin, right? Mouse Brown with the insects. Yeah. So it's really uncomfortable because this is a girls' school. These are young girls. It gets more uncomfortable as we go further in. But, yeah, the view of the girls is not... Um, I think it's very much his point of view. It's not Harwood's point of view, and she's she's making that really clear. But, yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit icky already. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One thing that I thought was neat before we move on is in the last line of the second sestet, where uh, she says pride and she ends the line with pride. 
the pride is actually referring to the head of the school. But with with the way that the line is arranged next to superb and silk and fur, you can't help but attach the word pride to Eisenbart. And so I thought that mm. was just a nifty little technical thing that she did. And yeah. then the next line, um, talking about half-hearted blooms, you know, I think that very much describes Eisenbart himself. He's described as indifferent twice in this poem. And then that half-hearted thing, which he sits beneath, that half-hearted crest, just go, you know, that that symbolizes him. That's sort of the, the uh, I mean, the objective correlative is not the right word, but the something like that. It's a representation of him. Uh, and then it's it's blooms. It's made of flowers. And then we get some really interesting flower imagery later on in the poem with the rose-hot dream. Mm. And so that shows the transformation of his half-hearted bloom into something else. So it's a cool continuity there, cool yeah. use of the development of imagery. Yeah. And even though he's the bad guy, we can all we can all also relate to what this feels like, that it's just everybody just has to be there. Nobody wants to be there. But then there is this figure, Howard talks about this girl with Titian hair, apparently Howard herself had reddish hair, who is sitting there in the crowd underneath underneath a light and she is making fun of Professor Eisenbach. She's reflecting the way he's sitting and she's not afraid of him at all. She's no insect. Yeah, and, and obviously that is a challenge to his entire worldview. Um, I think it's interesting that she that there's there's musical things going on in this poem and there's also visual art things. I think it's interesting that she is described as having Titian hair and he's described as Rodin's thinker. Mm. You, know, you have sort of two very different approaches to art. You have this very sensuous Renaissance approach to art versus this very angsty, you know, early modern approach to art. Mm. And I think that that is that is indicative and evocative of their respective personalities as well, because yeah. he's trying to, you know, he's pretentious. He's trying to be this very brooding figure and, you know, someone who like the modernists is trying to make it seem like he's saying more than he is just with his appearance. Yeah. It's um, all external. Right. Whereas the, the, the young girl, the Harwood stand-in with the Titian hair, she is much more confident in her own abilities and in her ability to express the things that she's good at. She just is, is much more, uh, forthcoming with her personality, with her talents. She's not faking anything. Yeah. Oh, speaking of faking, I think that the fact that he, in the third stanza, he's talk, um, he's described as recomposing his features is a very interesting contrast to the Mozart that's then played later, you know, composition and recomposition. Mm. Where, he, you know, he, his, his act, his song that he's playing is this performance of this high and lofty academic. Mm. And then that false presentation is then shattered by this real presentation of actual talent which is undeniable later on in the poem yeah 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 yeah. so once we get into the fifth stanza we get into the body the body starts getting introduced so this girl with titian hair stands up speeches were made and prizes given he shook indifferently a host of virgin hands music the girl with titian hair stood up hitched at a stocking winked at nearby friends, and stood before him to receive a cup of silver chased with curious harps. This little detail just I love so much. She says she hitched at a stocking. So, you know, it's a girl's school. It's probably, I don't know, like 
the 1950s or something like this move is so <laughs> it says so much about this girl who is like she's fully embodying her sexual power i think she winks at her friends and then she just she stands stood before him so she's not afraid of this guy at all and receives the cup i don't quite know what she means by chased with curious harps though that kind of tripped me do you have any thoughts on that i think the cup is engraved with harps because it's a music trophy and so the, the harps you know represent music Mm. Uh, what's interesting about that though is the word chaste you know it sounds it could be a pun it sounds like the word chaste c-h-a-s-t-e yeah uh, which which matches up with the virgin hands that you have in the uh second line of that stanza mm. and even even describing virgin hands is a sexual way to describe people you know mm. even though it's it's you know the absence of sex he harwood is describing these girls in terms of their sexuality, you have these harps, which can, I mean, Apollo is usually associated with a lyre, but even, even the word harps, I would still think of Apollo, especially in this poem, because you do have these Apollonian versus Dionysian forces. So, you know, it's, yeah, I, I would, I would equate Eisenbar with the harps and, you know, there's this, there's this uh, verb chasing. And so that reminds me of, uh, Apollo and Daphne, where you have Apollo who's lusting after this nymph, young Daphne, who represents nature, and then he chases her and chases her, and she eventually turns into a tree. And you know, we don't have any arboreal imagery here or anything like that, but I do think that the the combining of chaste with harps and curious, because he is very curious about her, mm. you know, that that sort of brings in these suggestions, these you know, you know, possibly Greco-Roman suggestions. Can you give us the uh, pigs and bunnies version of Apollo and Dionysus, those people for for people who might not know what sure. we're talking about? Uh, so the Apollonian-Dionysian distinction is one that has been understood for a long time, but I think was really only properly framed in those terms as a dichotomy by Nietzsche in The Birth of Tragedy, uh, which was one of Nietzsche's very first books he wrote when he was very influenced by Schopenhauer. He was still teaching classical philology. So it was a work of supposedly classical scholarship, although it wasn't accepted as such. It was really more accepted as a work of poetic philosophy later on. But in that work, he's talking specifically about tragedy. He identifies these two different impulses that are in the world and in people. The Apollonian, so Apollo, represents light and order and clarity and organization, whereas Dionysus represents chaos, darkness, uh, violence, sexuality, uh, ecstasy, uh, you know, whereas Apollo is very much concerned with the ego and you know, the assertion of self. Dionysus is concerned with the loss of self, you know, losing yourself in a concert or a, an orgy or some kind of ritual. You know, uh, drinking and dancing until you no longer remember who you are. The Dionysus is scary, but also very attractive. Yeah. And... Well, yeah, and she sets that up so well in that in the second to last stanza. So Professor Eisenbart has to shake the hand of this young musician. And when they touch, she says, He took her hand and felt its voltage fling his hold. 
from his calm age and power, suffered her strange eyes against reason dark to take his stare with her to the piano, there to change her casual schoolgirls for a master's air. It gets, it gets quite weird in this stanza, suffered her strange eyes against reason dark. I guess that means like you would expect a redhead to have light eyes, but she has dark eyes for some reason. Um, Oh, well, that, that's such a great phrase because you can read it so many ways. Yeah. You, you can read it as, oh, you know, her complexion. You wouldn't think that she would have eyes this color with hair the color or skin the color she has. You can also read it as, oh, she's she was described earlier as being in the light. And, you know, in despite being in this very lighted place or this very light position, she has such dark eyes. But of course, you can read it figuratively also um, against reason dark, meaning that reason doesn't have access to it. You know, he's coming from the position of reason. He's the Apollonian figure. And he's reaching out, trying to understand her, trying to grasp her, you know, probably he wants to literally, but no, also figuratively. Mm. Um, he, he's trying to to get her so that he can dominate her. He doesn't like this challenge to his authority. And yet the challenge to his authority is attractive to him because it gives him something to chase. You know, she is not an insect. She's not a mouse. She's not beneath his concern. She's someone who is able to challenge him. And therefore he is, he feels vulnerable and entranced and uncomfortable. But at the same time, he's just furiously drawn to her mm. and yeah. uh so against against reason dark and uh yeah and that could also mean not only that reason doesn't have access to it but that her eyes are antagonistic to reason you know her eyes are breaking down the reason that you know his reasonable faculties you know he, he's he's unable to cope mm. his reason is unable to cope with her eyes um and also you could read it as dark like if you say that someone looks at you darkly it means that they're looking at you almost maliciously yeah, or with anger. Yeah. So I think there's that as well. And, you know, I think she's a little bit too playful to be furious at him here. But I think there probably is a sense of hostility, you know, because she can see through him. She can yeah. see what a joke he is. And she's flirting with him. You know, she she owns her sexuality, as you were talking about. And so she is deliberately luring him. But there's also a sort of, you know, I, I don't know if she, I don't know if her, her wiles, if her flirtation is, at all genuine or if she's just flexing her power but regardless she also has this disdain for him which you know might go along with some attraction for him you know because his attraction is complex like that mm, yeah i don't know i'm not i'm not sure we have any evidence for that yet but <laughs> I'll, yeah no, well, so, so see i wouldn't i wouldn't say that she's you know romantically engaged by him but i do think that she herself is proud and this, this poem is about prize giving and i think that she could see him almost like a kind of trophy. Like she wants to capture his attention, um, that she wants to prove herself uh, equal to him and maybe also that she could dominate over him. And so in that sense, at least for this moment, her vanity is presenting her with a scenario where she desires him. And I don't, and again, I don't mean that romantically necessarily, or even that she thinks he's super hot, just that she she sees him as this trophy that she wants to, you know, assert dominance over and she wants to own in some way. Maybe. But the thing is that she, I think she already knows that she's dominated him because it says she changes her casual schoolgirls for a master's heir. Like she she knows that she's better than this guy already, having only just... Yeah. But most people who are... I think most people who are proud want to continually show people that they're, they have reasons to be proud of themselves. Mm. I, I think there are very few people who are uh, swaggering the way this girl swaggers and who don't want to constantly demonstrate their dominance. I think that's 
you, you, you just, well, I mean, maybe that's just me, maybe, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I feel like that's, uh, that's, that's usually how it goes. Like if you are, and what's interesting is in the last stanza, if you look at, it says summoned by arrogant hands. He forged his rose hot dream as Mozart told the fullness of all passion or despair summoned by arrogant hands. The music ended. Eisenbart teased his gown while others clapped and peered into a trophy which suspended his image upside down. A sage fool trapped by music in a copper net of hair. You know, I, I, that's so cool because you don't, you don't really know who they're talking about. You, I, I think Harwood wants you to think that she's talking both about the girl who is, you know, has demonstrated that she is a bit arrogant. Um, but it's also talking about Eisenbart because um, in the, what is it? One, two, three, four, five. In the fifth stanza, when someone calls music, you know, ah, let's have music. We don't know who that is either. Mm. And so if we, if we interpret this as coming from Eisenbart, Eisenbart says music. Then later on, when it says summoned by arrogant hands, then we could read that as Eisenbart because Eisenbart would have been the summoner. He would have been the one who said music. But you could also read it as the girl who is summoning forth the music because she is the one playing the music. Yeah. So I think you have Ar arrogant is doing double duty there, applying to both. And I think you're supposed to see that they're representing different brands of arrogance, which are sort of tussling and are in competition with each other. And that's part of what makes the poem amusing and delightful. Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be delightful at all if she was somehow subordinate to him. Um, my favorite line in the poem ends that second to last stanza, he forged his rose hot dream. And one of the things I've noticed reading this Howard selected is that she has this really fantastic ability to come up with like totally new and creative qualifiers like that rose hot dream is, I mean, that's just, that's a killer. That's an absolute killer to me. Um, yeah, it, it really works because you mm -hmm. have the word forged. So you're, you, you know, you're talking, you have this image of iron getting hot and it does turn more orange and then more red. So there's, there's that element. But then when we talk about rosy cheeks, for instance, we're talking about flush and, you know, usually maybe a flush of sexual desire or of passion. Mm. And so there's that element as well. And there's the element of it being a flower, the rose hot dream, which, which is a development from the half-hearted bloom that we were talking about earlier. So yeah. Again, it's it's a it's a really elegant formulation because it's working on so many different levels. Yeah, and you told me that Eisenbart translates to grey beard. I also saw it translated as iron beard. So yeah, it literally it literally means iron beard, but right. you know it's it's used descriptively to to call someone a grey beard. So yeah. yeah, that's actually I didn't think of that. That's that's true that he is iron that is getting hot. <laughs> that's that's very cool. <laughs> well, he doesn't he doesn't end the poem in a particularly good place. He is. He's suspended upside down in this in in the cup, a sage full trapped by music in a copper net of hair. I really don't understand the net of hair thing at all. I think it's I think it's just that he is so he's fascinated by her and attracted to her. And one of the things that makes her noticeable and different from everybody else and attractive to him is her red hair. Oh, it's Isn't her it? hair. Yeah. Okay, I get it now. I yeah. get it. But also also though, I looked I looked up copper nets. And copper nets are actually used in the fishing industry uh, because they're because copper has antimicrobial properties. So uh, lichen and uh, I don't know uh, various 
microorganisms and and mossy stuff doesn't grow on copper oh. so it, it is so it's often used for for that purpose yeah which... she might have known that too because she spends a lot of time in these ponds like out fishing in the channel and stuff it's interesting yeah yeah so yeah. i was wandering around on friday and i came across a copy of the new harwood biography which I didn't have time to read before this because it's 400 pages, but it looks absolutely delicious. And in parts of it, the um, the biographer talks about this character and how he's actually based on a real person who Harwood had an affair with when she was 18. Um, so yeah, he's 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 real. Eisenberg is real, <laughs> just FYI. But that goes to support my argument that she does feel some attraction for it, right? Because she did end up having an affair with him. She did, yes. But she, in the in the biography at least, the biographer says that Harwood maintains that she seduced this guy, not the other way around. And when she started writing the poems, you know, he was still kind of infatuated and obsessed with her, but she was, she was over him. She was well, like. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that totally tracks the poem. Yeah. I think I think that they're both seeing each other as conquests, but the girl is she, you know, the ball, you know, she she really has the upper hand. She is the one who successfully conquers. And you know, if you're the one who successfully conquers, you're the one who's more likely to leave. Yeah. Because you know, you you you've done what you set out to do. Yeah, it's just not a story you encounter that that often of just like I'm trying to think of another example like in a film or something i'm sure there are examples that are just not coming to mind right now but yeah it's good it's as much as i don't love this character and these poems i find a little bit of a slog to get through i think prize giving it's the most appealing of them because you get to see her in her full power and you get to see him so like totally defeated at the end yeah. You read it as a kind of revenge fantasy? Well, not now that I've read that little bit in the biography. Because the other point that the biographer makes is that she does have sympathy for these characters as well. Like, she's also tracking them losing their sexual power as they're getting older and less relevant. And she's not, it's not just pure revenge. Like, there is some kind there is some kind of love still there for them, I think. Otherwise, why bother yeah, write so I, many I, poems about them? Right. I, I think I think I meant I, I was more asking you. Do you did you read it as revenge fantasy and that's why you liked it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> revenge fantasy. I think I had to go with maybe. Like it is. Like I say, you just, you don't often see, don't often enough see stories that will have this conversation about this particular flow of sexual power. It is like this young woman is, she totally knows what's up and she's not, she's not afraid to use what she has. She's not afraid and she has the upper hand. You don't have to worry about her. She's gonna be okay, you know. You don't you don't see that a great deal, um, so yeah. Yeah, I, I I think it's great too. I think that that is mm. 
you know, half of what is charming about this poem. Mm. It's, you know, just marveling at this, this young firebrand of a woman. Yeah. So let um, me ask you why you, of the poems I sent you, why did you choose this one if Eisenbart is not someone that you were interested in reading about very much? Uh, well, I will tend to um, choose the hardest thing. And like, if if I don't like something, that's also interesting to me because I'm like, okay, what's my problem here? Like, what am I? And I'm glad that that we went with this one because, yeah, it's helped me to understand more about who Harwood was and... Um, I think this is where her, her feminist, um, thinking comes through the strongest. A lot of the selected, I was reading a little bit worried. I was a bit like, Ooh, I don't know where is there, is there a feminist thinker here? Like, I don't know that I, I relate to her completely, but then I sort of look at these poems. I'm like, no, she's actually doing a lot of, um, really interesting thinking around gender relations, which I didn't appreciate at first, just because I was like, oh, I don't know, I'm not interested in this guy. But yeah, I like, I like to force myself to approach stuff that initially turns me off. So. Yeah, that's a great quality. <laughs> maybe, or maybe it's just, you know, <laughs> just a way what, of um, I mean... making life hard. Um, but it's, it's it's wonderful to be so open-minded. Oh, look, I'm not that open-minded. Which brings me to your show. <laughs> That's where you draw the line. <laughs> so I really think that listening to your show, Versecraft, has helped me to come to poets like Harwood. I wouldn't, for so long I've had this book and it's just been sitting around and I've just thought, oh, I've got to read that one day. And then when I started reading it, in preparation to talk to you, I thought I only could have read this now. And part of that is because I've been listening to your show and I have a bit of a bit better understanding of meter and rhyme. So I can appreciate her work a little bit more. Um, and you know, yesterday I was at the same bookshop and I got a copy of A. a. Robinson and I'm excited to read that. So like you're opening up whole new worlds to me, which is lovely and I'm excited about that because it is like learning another language, this stuff, and you need to have it reinforced to you. Um, you know, I've done classes in it, but it's not like, it's not like it sticks unless you continually like return to it and have it reinforced and explained. So that makes you... me so happy to hear. I, re <laughs> well, I really, I really love that. Cause that, well... that, that is one of the main things I'm trying to accomplish with the show is to get people to be excited and check out new things and to understand how, you know, poems are working better. And that's great. Hey, I, I, I couldn't be happier about that. Well, all right. Um, don't get too excited though. <laughs> so you were right. going I along. We're, en we're still enemies. Yeah, we're definitely still enemies. So you were going along, you're making episodes and investigate various poems. You look at the structure, the meaning, every now and again you would say something you know and i'd be like washing up or out walking or something and i'd be like huh wait a minute <laughs> what did you mean by that and then you come out with this two-parter called the case for meter and rhyme would you like to outline what those episodes were and and what your um, goal was oh sure i mean it's a lot of information to to sum up but three sentences is all you get <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if I can stick to that. Uh, but it, it's in two parts. And the first part 
basically deconstructs and refutes what I have found to be the main arguments against meter and rhyme, the kinds of arguments that free verse poets will give for why they write free verse and why they don't write in meter and rhyme. So I have several different arguments which I address. Um, the argument from freedom, the argument from accessibility, the argument from spontaneity, the argument from natural speech, the argument from organic form, and the argument from modernity. So I go through and I give a brief outline of what I, how I see the argument running. And then I break down why I think it's fallacious or why I think if you, if you truly believe it, it would take you to places that you didn't want to be. And then in part two, I outline why I think people should, you know, on the positive side, write in meter and rhyme. So I have a number of benefits that I go through and I talk about how, um, how meter and rhyme accomplish these benefits and, you know, going through all the different virtues that rounds out the episode. So those virtues include things like compositional mindfulness, musicality, memorability, structural integrity, elusiveness, um, stylistic elevation, and the advocacy of order. And so I could go through and talk about why all those things are things that poets should desire and how meter and then later how rhyme accomplishes those things. So, and, and the way I framed the entire two-parter was to say, look, I, I'm not going to say that free verse is never justified because I, you know, it would be stupid and intolerant of me to say that there's nothing that's, and nothing good has ever been written in free verse because it's simply not true. There's all kinds of thing, good things that have been written in free verse. And I think sometimes, you know, if a free verse poet has a very specific vision, then the poem might suffer if they don't go with that vision. But I think that it takes a lot to justify that. And I was speaking in terms of the burden of proof. And I think what, what part of what my essay tries to show is the burden of proof is on the free verse poets because writing in free verse, or as, as I say, poetry and prose, you lose a lot of benefits that you get from meter and rhyme and you don't get much in return. There, there isn't a lot that only free verse can do. You know, pretty much anything that free verse can do as a technique, you can do with meter and rhyme. And then meter and rhyme has all these other things which you can also do. And I, I brought up in our conversation that to me, free verse poets, I, I, I look at them as if they're chefs who are only using salt and pepper when they make food. You know, and they and they 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 are scared of or don't know how to use all of these other ingredients, and they justify not using them by saying, "Oh, well, it'll overpower the dish or it'll do this thing," which you know would not happen if you were if you were a master of those ingredients, if you were a good chef, if you were a good chef, none of these things which you claim would happen. Oh, it's too spicy, it's too sweet, it's too overwhelming. None of those things would happen if you knew how all of those ingredients work, and if you did know how all of those ingredients work and you use them, you could make very uh, complex and elevated dishes, which would be more sophisticated and more impactful than the dishes you're making now. Okay. So what I'm more interested in rather than like trying to go back and forth with you and being like, well, no, my dishes are great. And I'm an, I'm a real chef too. What I'm interested in is like, why make this argument? Like, what is it about your path through poetry and your own approach that has brought you to this point where you feel that you want to draw this line in the sand? Well, part of it is looking at how bad on average most poetry is these days and seeing 
you know, to my mind, looking at it and thinking, well, one of the reasons this is so bad is because these people are writing whatever comes to mind. They And they are slapping things down any which way. They're not bothering to really think very closely about what they say before they say it. And, uh, and even if they do, they don't necessarily have an organizing principle for how they're going to make this the most impactful that they can, make this the clearest that they can. And I find that, you know, it's not as if when I'm reading poems in meter and rhyme, I'm always thrilled with what I'm reading. There's plenty of mediocre poems that are written in meter and rhyme, but I do find that on average, poems in meter and rhyme are much more sensible. You know, they have a much more clear goal. You know, the, the structure that's that you're using in meter and rhyme extends not only to the structure of the words, but the structure of the thought. And, you know, as someone who has transitioned from, you know, initially writing in free verse to writing using meter and rhyme, I've seen the way that it, there is a compositional difference. And I think that even in, when you are somebody who on a broader scale values order and intelligibility and and beyond order intelligibility, other di more Dionysian elements like like power and you know the ability to enchant. You know, I think I think that writing in meter and rhyme brings all of that in a way that free verse doesn't. I think that meter and rhyme has this you know deep you know sonorous and musical potential, which you know as as I've said in the podcast, you know makes things much more in, impactful and memorable and and uh, add, adds layers of of semantic information and beauty to to what you're writing and uh and that also extends to the and, and and not only do you have those more sensuous elements but the the technical more apollonian side of it you know you're you're structuring your thought in a certain way you know the way you're developing an argument is more apparent if you are developing an argument in your poem and all of that adds up to a certain way of writing poetry which is more sensible and which you know if, if you if you believe as i do that the poet has an obligation to the reader to present thoughts that are as well thought out and wise and and clear as possible i think meter and 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 but that are also impactful i think meter and rhyme to me is clearly the best way to do that hmm. well i don't agree with you uh, but what I'm wondering is like, if you're trying to win, because it seems to me like your, your actual goal is to win people over to the side of poetry, like as in good poetry, poetry that you see as good. And that's why you're making a show and you're on TikTok and like, you're working pretty hard at this cause. But the thing is, to me, it just seems really self-defeating to like deepen, reintroduce and then deepen this division and to say, this is, this is creating like bad work and people need to learn these tools and come over here and make better work. Like, don't you think you're introducing a division that doesn't need to be there? No, I think it does need to be there because I think that you need a way to measure quality. And this is part of, it's it, not that what I said, you know, outlined an entire way of measuring quality in poetry, because that's not what it was about. But it's beginning to introduce that kind of thinking, where are you really considering how you can write the best poetry that you're capable of? And how do you do that? 
And, you know, those are the questions I want people to think about. You know, I don't expect to automatically convert a bunch of people to writing the way I write or writing in meter and rhyme. But, you know, I do want people to at least consider the question because I found that, you know, most free verse poets that I've met, you know, they've never even considered writing in meter and rhyme. They don't know how it works. They they, they don't know anything. They, they don't even have the, they can't even make an informed choice about whether to write in meter and rhyme versus free verse because they, they, they couldn't write in meter and rhyme if they wanted to because they just don't have the, the tools to do it. And as a result, you know, I think I was talking to a, po to a poet just the other night about this, that even if you're totally set on not writing in meter and rhyme, it will still help you in so many ways to know how meter and rhyme work. Uh, for, for one, because as I mentioned in the podcast, you know, if you don't know how meter and rhyme work, you're going to miss so much beauty that's in all of pre-modern poetry. You're not going to be able to read it nearly as well. And you were just talking about how, you know, with with more metrical prosodic literacy, you're able to read Gwen Harwood in a way that you weren't able to read before. And, you know, those those doors open to people when they take an interest in how meter and rhyme work. And beyond that, when you're writing your own poems, even as I said, if you're completely into writing three verse poems, if you know how meter works and you know these other literary tools, they work then you're going to be so much more cognizant of how your poem sounds, how you can structure it, you know, where you can listen for cadences in a way that you wouldn't before. You know, you have all of these, you've been trained to look for all of these oral and structural elements. And that I think can can only strengthen your work. I, so, so I think that, you know, the, the point of the episodes is to get people to think, you know, light a fire under people's asses and, you know, get them to really examine their their preconceived notions about what poetry is, why they write poetry the way they do. And, you know, maybe that will lead some people down the path of, oh, you know, now I've seen the light. Now I want to write poetry in meter and rhyme. Great. Uh, but I don't expect everyone to do that. But I do I do hope that people will maybe pay more attention to how meter and rhyme works in poems that are in meter and rhyme. They'll maybe start to experiment with writing in meter and rhyme, see if they like it. And I, I think that can only lead to good places. Really what I want is for people to not be just swimming through the ocean of life, doing poetry however they want and being all, you know, just not being critical, you know, just doing whatever they want because that's the way they want to do it. I take poetry very seriously. I think it can, you know, it's, it's a wondrous and complex and hard art. And the more that we think about it, the more we think about how we can make it better, the more we think about how our own craft, um, how we can how we can use different craft techniques to to express ourselves and to express certain subjects. I think that's all good stuff. And you know, even if people yell at me and get mad at me, I that's great. I, I want because that shows that you care, right? It shows that you care enough and that you have these these uh, this judgment of how poetry should be that maybe you've never even thought about, you know, in, in this way before that you now have to think about and have to defend because I'm offering this challenge to you. Mm. You know, I want I want people to better understand. I want poets and artists in general to better understand why they work the way they work, what they're trying to accomplish with their poems. And I think that that is that is a win regardless. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I don't disagree with some of what you're saying there about how having an appreciation for these tools can, can make your poetry better. And also how, yeah, maybe you want to 
have a think about like what your goal is and what your what the reasoning is behind your choices and if you're going to discount these tools and maybe just check them out before you do like that's I can I can go that far with you but I guess the thing for me is what allowed me to finally get to the point where I felt like I was able to write a poem was a teacher who was very inclusive was somebody who never said should who never talked about um right or wrong and the thing is you know someone with like chronic imposter syndrome and self-doubt like me if you (laughs) if i come to the house of poetry and there's some guy standing at the door being like so before you get in i just want you to know that there are these like these rules and these standards and just, just, you know, you need to figure this out before you go in. I just would have turned around and walked away. And look, that's no huge loss for like poetry in general. But I just think that what, where this argument kind of leads is to this, to this sense of exclusivity. Like you, you either need a whole bunch of incredibly talented and knowledgeable teachers who are going to walk people through the door or you have to accept that like there's maybe five people out there who can teach this well and a lot of people are just going to be left swimming around in the ocean of free verse not really knowing what they're doing and 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 that's bad that's wrong like they're they're out in the cold well i mean part of what i'm trying part of what i'm trying to do is to shift you know it sounds so grandiose but you know I, i can only do what i can to shift culture in a certain direction, right? As, as I've as I've said on another podcast, you know, I'm casting my vote for this, where I want more people to be aware of the beautiful art that is meter and rhyme, and to be able to teach it. You know, I hope that, you know, by like, you know, say I eventually got to the point where thousands of people were were hearing what I had to say. You know, I would hope that a lot of those people would be teachers, who would then go, oh. You know, this is something that's really valuable and really worth teaching my students. And then they would go and teach their students. And we would develop, you know, again, I can't, I couldn't possibly do this on my own. But, you know, my, the hope would be that we could develop a society where, you know, meter and rhyme isn't this forbidding thing. It's this thing that's taught just like all these other subjects are taught in school. And so you don't have to look at it as this daunting uh, gatekeeping thing. It's it's more it's more that it's something that you understand from the beginning is part of the process of learning this art of learning this craft. Just like you know, sculpting I'm sure is very difficult. You know, becoming a ballerina is very difficult. You know, but people people don't see those as being gatekept. At least as far as I know, don't see them as being gatekept because everyone knows that you have to do those things. You know, you have to be passionate about the art and you have to want to go through all of this training. You have to you know work for years at it before you you know really master it. And, you know, no one begrudges the, the uh, I, don't, I don't know, the, the world of, of, baller, of ballet or the world of sculpting for being that way. That's just, that's, that's how it is. If you want to master these things, then you have to do it. You have to be willing to put in the work. And so, yeah, it, we, we are in a point in our culture right now where, yes, if you say, oh, you know, you've been practicing this thing for years, you love it, but I'm saying this is bad, you know, and it's like, oh, you have to learn all this new stuff, which you, you know, never looked at before and is intimidating and is boring to you. Like I can see, of course, how that is, that is unattractive and that can be daunting. But my, my point is to say, well, look, you know, 
this is actually a really valuable thing to learn. You know, maybe we should be learning it more. And it would be great if people saw this as part of poetry. It would be great if when people thought of poetry, they didn't think of just writing down their feelings. If they thought about, oh, that means learning how iams and trochees and meter work, you know, and then going on from there. So, you know, it's it's a rude awakening and, you know, a a threat to the pride of a lot of poets working today because we just, it's total anarchy. People have no standards. People have no craft, you know, uh, craft mastery in common. So it, it's, it's difficult, you know, it's, it would, it's, it's a real growing pain, I think. But, you know, I want to see a world where people see that poetry is an art worth taking seriously, that takes hard work. And, you know, it's accessible to everyone. I want it to be accessible to everyone. But you have to take it seriously. And you have to be willing to put in the effort to get better and not just assume from the beginning that you can write something down and be a genius and then that's enough. You know, what, what other art is like that? There, you know, every other art, you know that you have to put in years of piano lessons. You know, you have to put in years of, 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 of you know, training with an apprentice, being an apprentice in a, in a sculpting atelier or whatever it is. You, you have to put in the work. And, you know, to, to not think that poetry needs that, I think, is to discount poetry, is to not take it seriously enough as an art form. Yeah, but I think, I, I think that poets who don't use these tools still take it as seriously as you're describing. I think that we know that our first poems are shit and we've got to work for a long time to get better. Um, there, like there are some standards, like they're just not quite as clear cut as perhaps you would want them to be. So well, you, 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 you read the poems in the New Yorker, right? You know how terrible they are. Ah, oh, well, now look. <laughs> I've been right? told and that's to stop. Supposed to be the pen that's supposed to be the pentacle. I've right? been told to stop reading the New Yorker. <laughs> uh, I don't like fighting Elijah. I don't like this. This is not my jam. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't start this. You started. No, it. you didn't. You didn't. Well, okay. So, so I want to hear from you. I want to hear your rebuttal to my thesis, if you have one. You know, what I... do you think? That, what do you think that free verse offers that is unique? and justifies people writing free verse as opposed to writing in meter and rhyme. I the way I'll frame it is just to go back to the word I used before. It's the argument from inclusivity. Because I am pretty deeply uncomfortable with the idea that to be considered somebody who's writing capital P poetry, you have to have an appreciation and an understanding of these tools because I, I just don't think that's realistic i don't think it's practically possible at this point in the culture i mean that might change in 100 years and that that would be cool but i i think that this sets up a culture that is exclusive and i would never personally argue for that um but, and I also, yeah, again, I just, I really feel that, you know, that there is this kind of thing of like, okay, so we can measure how well this line has been written in terms of its, its metrical structure. We can look at this rhyme scheme. We can, we can decide how, how well we think the poet has, has done all that. But like p poets who don't use those tools are still making decisions and thinking about what sounds good and why they've done certain things and it's not as if there is it is total anarchy i don't think it's anarchy 
I just think it looks different to how you would want it to look. In my limited experience working in my MFA program, where I was surrounded by, I think probably pretty much everyone was a free verse poet. In the workshops that we would, that we would attend, I just, I thought all of it was so wishy-washy. You know, the kinds yeah, of- Yeah, but they're, they're students, like they're new to it. This, these are their first poems, probably. They're meant to be shit. Well, well, well I mean, I, I don't think most first poems for most people, but also even even like the the kinds of advice that the professors would give would be so, it would be so impressionistic. Yeah, right? okay. Because well, I think yeah. workshop is pretty, like, pretty much bunk. Like, I think we can, I, I don't think that's where you get good feedback. I think we could just, just do I, away I with workshop. I, it's, it's different. I, you know, I don't think that the principal value of writing in meter and rhyme is to be able to say, oh, you wrote that, you wrote that line wrong. I can show you how to write it better. And now we have objective standards. That's not the point. The ultimate point is to write the best poetry. And I think the meter and rhyme is a vehicle by which we can do that. Um, I think meter and rhyme does as, you know, as people have said, it does expose you when you don't do it well. That's true. But again, the point is not to say, gotcha, you do, you're doing it wrong. The point is that to, um, to that I think meter and rhyme gives you greater clarity on how to, how to decide if something is working or not working. And beyond the level of just, is your iambic line smooth? I think that it also gives you tools to say, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm following this kind of train of thought through these stanzas and I want to be able to do that as well as I can, or I want to achieve this sort of effect with the, with the sound. And I don't know if I'm getting it or not, or, you know, what, how would the poem look different if it was in this other form or if it was in this other meter? And yeah, I, I yeah. think it gives you, I think, I think it gives you more concrete tools to be able to improve your poems I, with, with free verse. I mean, sure. People write it. Some people write it better than others, but I think that there's no guidebook at all. No, there for, is no guidebook. You know, you got to come uh, up with your own guidebook. That's 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 bullshit, Alice. Well, why? <laughs> why? Why? Is because it because bullshit? then people because then if if everyone can just decide whatever they want is is good, then there's not going to, there's hardly going to be any progress. You know, if someone even if someone critiques you and says, oh, you know, I think this would be better here, you can just say, well, that's your opinion, man. Like, there's no there's no conversation to be had there because you know i think it looks better here and i'm going to put it across the page over here and you know who knows if that makes it better or not but i like yeah the way but it so then why are there free verse poems that lots and lots of people agree are really good poems that that they like well because the poets who wrote them had smart things to say and used good diction and had interesting thoughts and you know obviously it's a case-by-case -case basis but i would say that in most of those cases it probably would have been even better if it was in meter and rhyme or just meter, maybe. We're not going to get anywhere, are we? This is, well, so, yeah, and, and also, I don't also, like I, this. This I doesn't wanna, feel I wanna, good. <laughs> I, I want to push back a little bit on this idea, of this gatekeeping idea, or you know, not being inclusive. I do address this in, in, in the podcast. This is one of the arguments. But I also want to say that you know, part of the goal of Versecraft is to be inclusive. Part of the goal of Versecraft is to welcome people in and say, hey, there's this cool thing. Let's learn about it together and give people the tools, not say, oh, you don't have the tools. Therefore, you're not allowed in. It's to say, hey, here are the tools. Go out, run with them, figure things out. And, you know, maybe it'll maybe it'll spark some some uh, creativity in you. Maybe it'll 
but you bring you down a path of craft that you wouldn't otherwise, or maybe it'll just allow you to appreciate certain other poems better. But, you know, I'm all about education. I'm all about opening the doors to people, but it also takes work. It's, it's not, you know, I don't think that saying that you need to work hard at something means that it's, 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 it's inaccessible. No, but I mean, you maybe... just, you're just skipping over the part where like free verse poets also work hard. Like we, we work hard and we redraft, we like workshop each other's stuff. We read, like we're not slackers. We're not all slackers. I mean, I'm a slacker, but the other ones aren't. Everyone else is working very hard. Oh, sure. Okay. So, but if you're working very hard, why not learn about meter and rhyme? Not why, why not at least learn how it works? That can only help you. I mean, yeah. Look, and, and the thing is that like, I am basically won over to your way of thinking because I do write in meter and rhyme now. So like, I'm pretty sympathetic, but I'm still just like so uncomfortable. Well, you did, but you can project all of that discomfort onto me and I, I'll, I'll handle it. I just don't think that this is a way to win people over, like, despite... But, but you know what? You know what the beautiful thing, Alice, is that it is. It has oh, is worked. that true? Is that true? Well, you're... I Are mean, you more famous day, than right? me now? If so, I am hanging up. I feel like one of the really unfair things about getting to do the outro is that you get the last word. I get the last word. I don't really have any last words on that conversation. I think the main thing that I thought listening back to it was we really need a lot more time to talk this through. I don't, I just don't know whether I could ever convince Elijah. I don't know that he could convince me, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't matter. The other thing about doing an outro is that um, you're never really sure who is listening by this point, but it's a pretty safe bet that the guest is still listening. So, Elijah, thank you for helping me finally come to Gwen Harwood. It really is, yeah, it's a real gift. And, and also for introducing me to all the other poems you've introduced me to through your show. And look, as much as I hate conflict of any kind... <laughs> I think you might be one of the few people in the world that I can disagree with that much and still have great affection for. This is a very rare thing. Uh, yeah, keep keep fighting the good fight. <laughs>